Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 23 through 28. And as you all are turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's ministry. So those who are participating in that ministry can make their way to the room back there and our volunteer leaders uh, will meet you. And so as you're turning there to Hebrews 9, I don't know if you all saw, but uh, Hebrews was in the news this week. Did you all see this? It was a Jeopardy question this week. I thought that was interesting. Uh, a Jeopardy, I should, it's a Jeopardy answer, not question, right? A Jeopardy answer. So it was the uh, New Testament epistle that Paul wrote that contained the most Old Testament references. And they were wrong on both counts because we don't know who wrote Hebrews, nor does it contain the most Old Testament references because that goes to Romans. So if whoever, I don't know what, if anybody got that right or not, but I thought that was uh, interesting. Lots of people were talking about it because of the apparent mistakes there. But, but we're going to dive into Hebrews this morning, chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. So let me read our passage for us this morning, and then we'll pause and pray And ask for the Lord's help as we do every week. So Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and just, as is, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we just want to pause and express our gratitude for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. Father, we know that the only reason we are here this morning is because of what Christ has done, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, because of the life that he now lives at your right hand interceding for us, because your spirit has been sent to dwell within us, to awaken us to the glories of Christ and to the truth of your word, and and to even right now this morning be at work in us through the truth of your word changing us and conforming us to the likeness of Christ, allowing us to see the glories of what he has done, that our confidence in his finished work might increase this morning. And so, Father, I pray as we enter into this Thanksgiving holiday that you would fill us with gratitude, 
that we would be overwhelmed with thanksgiving toward what Christ has done in our place. And I, I pray that even as we gather around the table with friends and family over these next days, that you would, that you would give us opportunities to express this gratitude and to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those around us. So Father, this morning, I pray that you would do all of these things, that you would awaken us to the glories of Christ, that you would help us to see more of him and what he has done and who he is. I pray that you would guide my words, allow me to only speak what is true of you, to lead no one astray, including my own heart, and that you would use your word this morning to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so we pray that you would do all of this for our good and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to know that I'm, I'm really excited this morning. I know you think it's because my Gamecocks thrashed the Tennessee Volunteers last night, 63 to 38. But no, in fact, the reason I am excited is because of this passage this morning. This is a glorious passage that reaches to the foundation of the world and into eternity and it is an amazing thing that we get to do to look at that this morning. That we get to see in this, in this one passage how the all-sufficient death of Christ is able to reach back to the very foundation of the world and bring it to fruition, the end of the ages, and guarantee the salvation of his people at the end of days. By virtue of that, this passage shows us and reveals to us that the cross of Christ is the central event in all of history and in all of the universe, without question, without competition. And I don't say that lightly because even over this past week, if you saw on the news, you know, more... Uh, more studies have been done, more images have been uh, uh, released, and papers have been released from this new telescope that, that NASA now has uh, orbiting out around the sun a million miles away, the James Webb Telescope. And it's able to peer out and see things much farther away than we could have ever imagined. And just this last week, there was, um, there was in the news that it's seen a the farthest galaxy that we have ever seen now, literally billions upon billions of light years away from us, and we're seeing it. And these are incomprehensible numbers, right? Just the vastness of the universe, that there are things that exist that seem to be billions of light years away from us, and that these uncountable galaxies, right? On, on the low end, something like two billion galaxies could be as high as two trillion galaxies filled with hundreds of millions of stars each. There are literally more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches of this planet. It is incomprehensible and unthinkable. These are staggering numbers. And yes, now we know through modern, modern history that, that no, the, the, the sun does not revolve around the earth, right? The earth revolves around the sun. We're not even at the center of our own galaxy, much less the center of the universe. But I will tell you this, what the Bible confirms to us is that mankind is at the center of God's plans for his glory. That the redemption that Christ has accomplished uh, for us through the cross is at the very center of God's purposes. 
Therefore, my prayer for us this morning and this week, as I've said, leading up to Thanksgiving, is that our hearts will be refreshed with an ever greater spirit of gratitude for all that Christ has accomplished, that has an effect on the past, the present, and the future, and into all of eternity, both in this creation and in the heavens above. So what I want to do this morning is simply meditate on the glories of Christ that the book of Hebrews continues to unfold for us this morning, right? What, what better way to spend a Sunday leading up to Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, we, we could have had a sermon on Thanksgiving, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, by the way. But what better way to reflect on our gratitude than to reflect on, indeed, what Christ has accomplished for us? And we have the privilege of being able to do that as Hebrews just continues to pile on the glories of Christ for us throughout the entire book. And so I want us to see this morning what Christ has done. And the way this passage breaks it down, there are, there are three appearings of Christ that this passage tells us about. Three appearings of Christ. You see it first in verse 24. It says at the last half of 24 that he now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see it in verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. And you see it there in verse 28. He will appear a second time. These three appearings of Christ. So, so here they are in summary format. Number one, Christ appeared in the presence of God for us. Christ appeared in the presence of God for us. Number two, Christ appeared to put away sin once for all. Christ appeared to put away sin once for all. And number three, he will appear a second time to save. He will appear a second time to save. So let's just walk through each of these appearances one at a time and watch the glories of Christ unfold before us. So number one, Christ appeared in the presence of God for us. You see that there, as I mentioned there in verse 24, for Christ has entered into the holy places, uh, sorry, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. But before we get into the details of that, let's be sure we get a, we get a running start and let's pick up from last week's passage where we saw there in verses 18 through 22 where the author of Hebrews is reaching back into the old covenant and reminding us that under that covenant, the sacrificial system and the tabernacle, that everything had to be sprinkled with blood. Everything was covered with blood. The book, the altar, the tent, blood just everywhere, right? That's, that's what he says to us. Everything had to be sprinkled with blood. And then he concluded there in verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then he transitions into verse 23 and says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. So this language re reminds us of what we learned, have learned throughout Hebrews, but more particularly earlier in chapter 9, that this earthly tabernacle, this earthly 
tent, as Hebrews calls it, was a copy of what already existed in the heavenly places. It is a copy that Moses was shown on the mountain. He was shown this pattern, and, and he was to erect this tabernacle that was to be a copy of this reality that existed in heaven, which is why earlier in chapter 9, it tells us, uh, verse 11, that Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. That these things here are copies of these things up there that are in another place, that are not even of this creation. That as we talked about the week when we preached through that passage, that even if you could travel the billions of light years to that galaxy that that James Webb telescope just found, you still couldn't get to heaven. It's not of this creation. It's of a different place. And that these copies that exist here on earth had to be purified with these rites, namely with the sprinkling of blood, which shouldn't surprise us because everything that humanity touches needs to be purified because we stain everything with our sinful hands. But it's the next line of verse 23 that's confusing. Because the next line says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So these real things, these things that exist in heaven, this heavenly place that is not of this creation where God dwells, the holiest of holies. Why does it need to be purified with these things? Why does it need to be purified with a greater sacrifice? Why does blood need to be spilled to purify the heavenly places? Right? It makes no sense. The heavenly places are pure. It is the very dwelling place of God. It is the holiest of holies. Why does heaven need to be purified? Right? It's a question we have to wrestle with. And, and commentators, biblical commentators and biblical scholars have been wrestling with this for a long time. And there are all kinds of attempts to try and figure out what in the world the author of Hebrews means when he says that the heavenly things themselves had to be purified with better sacrifices than these. And so some have speculated, well, perhaps it's because Satan rebelled in heaven. And so he... He defiled heaven before he rebelled, and therefore it had to be cleansed from the defilement of Satan. Well, that doesn't seem to be the context of what the author of Hebrews is talking about, because he, he's talking about what Christ has done for us, and, and really not relating it to what Satan has done at all. So that doesn't seem to be quite right. Others speculate, well, it's because God, because of our sin, has had to demonstrate his wrath. His wrath has had to come forth from heaven, and therefore heaven had to be cleansed. But but that really paints God's wrath in the wrong light, as if it's a dirty thing. That's not at all what God's wrath is. It's part of the purity of his character. And so that doesn't really seem to be a good solution either. Another group of uh, scholars see it referring to God's people, that somehow the heavenly things is this universal church, big picture, that, that God's people, that our consciences will be cleansed, that he purifies us with better sacrifices than these. But 
Again, that doesn't seem to be at all what the context would indicate because the whole point has been that there are, there's something that exists in the heavenly places that is the pattern after which Moses erected the earthly tabernacle. And so I don't think it's right that it's talking about the consciousness of mankind either. So then what does that leave us with? Why did the heavenly things, these holy, pure things, need to be purified? Well, I want to be clear. I feel it would be arrogant for me to say I know better than all these scholars who have argued this for a long time. So there are multiple valid positions, but I'm just going to give you what, what I think this passage is saying this morning. I think it's important to, one, notice the context, and two, to notice the argument. So verse 24, the author of Hebrews says, for Christ has entered, so just pause right there. The word for, another word for it, because, it's giving a ground for what's just been said before. And it's going to sound strange when I first say it this way, but just track with me for a minute. The heavenly things themselves had to be purified with better sacrifices than these because Christ has entered that place. Now that sounds strange, right? Why would Christ, the Son, the eternal, glorious Son of God, entering the heavenly places cause it to need to be purified? Well, this touches on exactly what we talked about a few weeks ago when we were in verses 11 through 14, and we asked a similar question, right? Chapter 9, verse 12, the author of Hebrews says, talking about Jesus, that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And we ask the question, why would Jesus, the eternal glorious Son of God, who is God of God, very God of very God, he is God himself, why would he, why would Jesus Christ have to shed his blood to enter the holy places? Well, because he brought into the holy places the sins of his people. Because we saw 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That on the cross, Jesus took our sins on himself. Our sins were, the theological word is imputed. Our sins were imputed to Christ. He bore them on himself. He was condemned guilty because of our sins. He, being innocent, bore our sins on himself. And so I think that probably what the author of Hebrews is referring to is that when Christ entered the holy places, he entered bearing our sins. And he shed his blood and therefore cleansed the heavenly places of, the, of our sins that he brought into that very place. And friends, that is glorious good news for us this morning. That Christ is, that Christ is the better sacrifice that he has entered not into holy places made with hands. We never saw Jesus Christ in this time on earth enter into the holy of holies in the temple. No, he entered into the holiest of holies in the heavenly places, not into holy places made with hands, which are, which are copies of the true things. But he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
So why is it that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice? On our behalf, so that he could appear before God on our behalf. That is a staggering reality. It's why I said what I said at the beginning, that the cross is the central event in all of history, that, that he places us, his redeemed people, at the very center of his purposes. That Christ came and took on flesh so that his flesh could be broken, so that he could die in our place, so that he could appear before God for us. And he is there and he has paved the way so that when we arrive in the heavenly places with our sin upon us, those sins have already been cleansed from the holy places. And when we arrive, it is paid in full, it is finished, dealt and done with so that we can join with him in the holiest of holies and the heavenly places. There is nothing left for us to offer because Christ has already offered it. You know, it reminds me of a, it's somewhat of a silly comparison, but uh, had a, a good group of friends in high school and we would often, you know, go out to eat on the weekend together at some restaurant. So there was a group of, I don't know, uh, nine or 10 of us together that had gone out to eat somewhere. And um, a friend of ours uh, didn't line up things well with his parents, I guess, that, that they were at the same restaurant that we arrived at, which can be a little awkward, right, sometimes. But it wasn't too bad. We had a good relationships with each other's parents, but there they were across the way. And they left before us, our group of friends finished eating, and then the waitress brought the ticket over, and of course we expected it all to be split among us, but she brought one ticket and set it down, and it said, paid for, because our friend's parents had paid for everyone's food. Now in that moment, there was nothing left for us to pay, right? It's done. There's nothing we can add to it. Like we're not, we don't need to go wash dishes in the back to cover our bill, right? There's, there's nothing left for us to do. It's, been, it's paid for. And that's what Christ has done as he has entered into the heavenly places on our behalf and has shed his blood and has offered the better sacrifice and has purified the heavenly places with, so that our sins do not defile it. But therefore we are able to enter into it because Christ has gone before us. He has appeared before God on our behalf. But not only has he appeared before God on our behalf, he also appeared to put away sin once for all. So this brings us to the second appearance of Christ. Christ appeared to put away sin once for all. Look there with me at verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the, by the sacrifice of himself. 
Now here in verse 26, or sorry, verse 25, the, the author is clarifying that when Jesus came, he, he's not having to operate like the earthly high priest had to operate. He's not having to offer himself repeatedly because that is in fact what the earthly high priest had to do every single year. Year upon year upon year, they had to slay animals and shed blood to atone for their sins and then for the sins of the people before they could enter into the Holy of Holies. Why? Because Israel never stopped sinning. It never stops. And as we've seen in Hebrews, the blood of goats and bulls can never fully atone for sin. And so they had to keep bringing them over and over and over again because the the work of the high priest was never done because the, the work of sinning by God's people was never done. There was always more sin to be dealt with. And so there had to be more sacrifices that needed to be made. And so every year on the day of atonement, the priest, once again, the high priest, that one individual who was set apart once again had to enter into the Holy of Holies, shedding blood for his own sins and for the sins of his people. But verse 25 says that Jesus didn't have to do that. He didn't have to offer himself repeatedly. But here's what gets really interesting about this passage. It says that if Christ would have had to do that, if that is how he would have had to operate to accomplish what he needed to accomplish, then he would have had to offer himself repeatedly, suffer repeatedly, verse 26 says, since the foundation of the world. Now, let's track with this argument here. The author is saying to us, that if it were the case that Christ had to, had to repeatedly suffer and repeatedly offer himself, if that's how he had to do it, then to accomplish what he accomplished on the cross, that would have had to have started at the very beginning. In other words, he's saying, look, Christ dying in A.D. 33 would not have been sufficient. Him dying there and then dying every year subsequent to that would not have dealt with sins in the past. No, he would have had to start dying from day one. From the moment Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, Christ would have had to start right there at that moment, repeatedly offering himself over and over and over and over again from day one, from the very foundation of the world. That's when Christ would have had to start his work. Now, why is that such a powerful statement? Because the author of Hebrews by saying that, is revealing to us the scope of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That he doesn't have to start at the beginning. That No, his one-time death doesn't just forgive sins moving forward. No, it reaches into the past. It reaches back to the very foundation of the world. This once for all death of Christ in our place forgives sins past present, and future. It is a once-for-all death on the cross from the foundation of the world to the end of the ages. Do you see the language there in verse 26? 
He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has put it all away for all who will trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Look, there is so much loaded into that last half of verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So let's just take that one phrase at a time. He has appeared once for all. Jesus has appeared once for all time, a, a never needing to be repeated event. His appearance once to sacrifice himself on the cross was enough. It does not need to be repeated. It is a once for all time event. Second, it says that this happened at the end of the ages. Now, I know that sounds strange because it sounds strange that something that happened 2,000 years ago would be something that happened at the end of the ages. So what does the author of Hebrews mean when he says that Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages? Well, I want you to know that that's how the Bible speaks of the days in which we live. From the day Christ appeared until his return, the Bible sees as the end of the ages. In other words, we're not waiting for the end of the ages to arrive. We are in the end of the ages. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. <clears throat> we, are, we are in the end of the ages right now, this very moment. And the Bible speaks in this way in multiple places. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, talking about Jesus, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus arrived in the last times. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, talking about Old Testament saints. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now remember, Paul's writing this in 1 Corinthians to the early church is in the, the, inside the first hundred years after, uh, or the first 50 years after the death of Christ, he's writing to the Corinthian church and he says, look, the end of the ages has come on you. It's arrived. We are right now living in the end of the ages. So that's what the author of Hebrews means when he says he appeared once for all time at the end of ages, of the ages. And why? Why did he appear? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Right? What a glorious statement. That Christ, through his sacrifice, through his death on the cross, has put away sin. Remember last week we meditated on this eternal inheritance that God has for us. 
into eternity, right? Into heaven, into the new heavens and the new earth, there's this eternal inheritance. But yet there's this grand obstacle that stands in our way, namely our sin that keeps us from being able to enter into the heavenly places and to inherit this eternal inheritance. And yet this tells us that Christ has dealt with that very obstacle, that he has put sin away. And how is it that Christ did this through his sacrifice? By taking on flesh, Remember, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, could not die. The only way for him to die was to become a man. And so he took on flesh in the likeness of you and I and and, and took on this weak, frail human flesh. And he laid down his life on the cross and sacrificed himself in our place and took our sins upon him. He bore the wrath of God in our place so that it would not be poured out on us on the cross, and in doing so, he has put away sin. Because God is a just God, and he will not punish sin more than it deserves. And he has already punished the sin of all who trust in Christ on the cross. Therefore, there is no wrath left for the children of God. Because Christ put it away and dealt with it by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Therefore, we're not waiting for something better to come along. We're not waiting for a better sacrifice. We're not waiting for a better Savior. God's not waiting for you and I to do something impressive to earn our way into heaven. No, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. And because of the finished work of Christ, we find ourselves with the glorious truth of Christ, of of the third appearance in this passage, which is Christ's second appearance, which is this. Christ will appear a second time to save us. That is the third appearance that's referenced in this passage. Christ will appear a second time to save us. Look at verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, in these verses, the author of Hebrews is making what I think is a fascinating comparison. So he begins by reminding us of the fate of humanity, that it is appointed for man, for mankind, men and women, to die once. And after that death comes judgment. In other words, there is no reincarnation. There is no second chance to get things right, to try and live this life over again. The point of this statement is to clarify that in death, the fate of our eternity is sealed. That death comes, it is appointed for man to die once, not multiple times, not multiple opportunities to die once. And when we die, after that comes judgment. That's the order of operations and the sequence of events. Death is not an opportunity to repent or to realign your values and beliefs. No, we die, then comes judgment. 
That's the theological order that God has given us. Now, that's not the main point of the text. The main point of the text is a comparing what Christ has done to that reality. But nevertheless, verse 27 is a sobering statement. And it is an unbearable weight that we would have to carry if not for the finished work of Christ. Right? I, I do not know how we could operate in this world if not for the finished work of Christ to think that upon death, judgment is coming. We would not be able to carry a weighty burden. We think, we think there are uh, people who struggle, genuinely struggle, and I'm not belittling this at all with depression and anxiety and, and just overwhelming despondency. Imagine facing death apart from Christ. It would be an unbearable weight to have to face the living God with the guilt, weight, and shame of a lifetime of our sins upon us. But the point of this passage is that we don't have to do that. Right? That's the point. The point here is to point us to Christ because just as it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment, now here comes the glorious comparison. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, all right, just pause right there. Here's the comparison. We die, then comes judgment. Christ died, then came judgment. But our judgment doesn't land on us. Our judgment landed on Christ. He died once to bear the sins of many, to be judged in our place. So Christ, having been offered once to bear our sins, to experience our judgment, to take it on himself so that we would not have to face that very judgment when we die, to be condemned for all eternity, because of what he has done, he will appear a second time, but not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now let's reflect on this for a moment because I want to be really clear about what the author of Hebrews is saying there in that last half of verse 28. That he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We need to be sure we understand what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Because I want to make clear to everyone in this room that when Christ appears a second time, he will be coming to deal with sin. Right? The book of Revelation makes that clear. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But lest I sound like I'm contradicting God's word where it says he's not going to deal with sin, what it means is he's not going to deal with the sin of the redeemed. He's not going to deal with the sin of those who have placed faith in him. He's not going to deal with the sin of those who are eagerly waiting for his coming. But listen, the book of Revelation makes clear that when Christ comes, he will be coming to deal with sin. And so just so we see the contrast here, let me turn and just read from you a few places in Revelation to make this clear. Revelation chapter 14, 
verses 17 through 20. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are, ri for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And perhaps one of the most sobering verses in all of the scripture. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's a little farther than from here to Charlotte. The wine press of the wrath of God and blood flowing from it at the end of the ages when Christ returns. At the end of the end of the ages, I should say. And we have Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. I know this is a longer passage, but let me read it for us. Revelation 19, beginning of verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. By the way, this is clearly Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Now, I know that's a violent passage. But that's why Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17 tells us that when this day comes, 
that those who do not trust in Christ will be begging and pleading for the mountains to fall on them. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Can you imagine, right, the fear when you see Christ coming that you want to be buried under the rubble of Mount Everest to keep you from having to face him? But that will not be our experience. Right? That's what verse 28 is saying to us, and that's why I wanted to be clear about what will happen and how there will be two different experiences on the day that Christ comes. There will be one group that will tremble and will be terrified and would prefer to be buried under a mountain. And there will be another group, namely the redeemed children of God, who will be eagerly waiting for him. Do you see the difference? Do you see the contrast? He's not coming to deal with the sin of his people. He's coming to save his people. And what will those people be like? Those will be people who will be eagerly waiting for him. That group of people will be looking to the skies with eager expectation, right? On the edge of their seats, waiting for him to arrive, excited and filled with joy about his coming. Now hear me out this morning. This is not a switch that will turn on when he appears in the sky. In that moment when Christ appears in the sky, your thoughts of Jesus will have already probably been defined. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Or are you indifferent to him? So I ask each of us this morning, I ask my own heart this morning, right? This is, this is weighty, right? This is what earlier in Hebrews, the author told us that the word of God does to us. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, so this is the word of God discerning our hearts this morning. Are you eagerly awaiting the coming of Jesus? Right, it's, Paul says something similar, 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
Listen, this, this verse has captured my heart for many years because look, it's, it doesn't say that Christ will appear to save those who believe in his coming. Right? You can believe he's coming and not really care or live like you don't care. Right? Now this says you believe it and you are eagerly waiting for it, right? It's like a child on Christmas morning, right? A child who can't sleep, a child who's so excited, he's so fixated on what he's going to find when he walks downstairs and what he's going to, what he or she is going to see under the tree, right? That, that's what eager expectation looks like. And I'm not saying that we should have sleepless nights every time we lay our head down waiting for Jesus to come, but I am saying, do you have joy in your heart over the thoughts? Or when you think about the reality that Jesus could come back five hours from now, are you sad because there's other things you want to get done before that happens? Because there's adventures you want to take, things you want to accomplish, things you want to achieve. Look, it's not bad to want those things. I'm just saying, what's the priority in your heart? Right? This is how the Word of God descends, uh, discerns our thoughts and intentions. And I will say that if there's anything in your heart or in my heart that we want more than Jesus to return, then, then we need to do some soul searching because we might have some idols in our life. Are we eagerly waiting for Christ's return. You see, as I said, I fear that so much of our lives are tied up into the here and now that many people, many Christians, I think have asked, would say, yeah, I want Christ to come, but there's just a long list of things I want to experience and achieve and obtain before he gets here. And so we have to evaluate ourselves about those things. Look, it's not bad as Christians to have goals, to have desires, to have wants. Look, that, those are good things. We ought to plan for the future. We need to think about the future. We, we need to be pursuing, glorifying Christ in our future. But there is nothing we should want more than to see Jesus face to face. And to be filled with the joy of his presence forevermore. And let me be clear, we don't, we don't earn our salvation by our eager waiting. That's not what's happening. But what verse 28 is saying is that those who belong to Christ, those who have placed their faith in him, those who have been redeemed, those who have been adopted as his children, should bear the fruit of eager awaiting. That should be the mark of believers The fruit of salvation is to create within us a longing and eager hope for the return of Christ because we will finally see the face of Jesus and that will have been the thing that we have wanted for our entire lives. That's why the fruit of salvation is an eager waiting for him because there's nothing more than we could want than that. Listen, this is what Christ has achieved for us. We don't have to fear death because he has 
bore the judgment that we deserve already. We don't have to fear his coming because he has already stood in our place. We don't, have to, we don't have to fear anymore. We don't have to fear the consequences of our sin because Christ has offered himself once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. He has appeared before God on our behalf. He has gone before us. He has cleansed the way. There is no wrath left to be poured out on our sins because Jesus has in fact paid it all, right? What more do we need to be thankful for than what has occurred through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so may the Lord fill our hearts with gratitude and thanksgiving. I know I've said it probably half a dozen times this morning, and I'll probably say it a half a dozen more times, right? We need to be filled with thanksgiving for the finished work of Jesus Christ in our place. And may it change us. And may we share this joy and excitement and eager waiting with those we encounter in the coming week. And I pray that the Lord will fill us with an eager expectation of the coming of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for all that you have done for us. It's hard to even wrap our minds around the grace and mercy that you have poured out on us compared to what we deserve to comp compared to what you have given us. Jesus, we are thankful that you have appeared in the heavenly places, that you have appeared in the presence of God, and you have cleansed the heavenly places from any, any judgment for sin that we bring into that place, any sin that we bring into that place. You, you brought it first, and you shed your blood to purify it, that we might enter into the very presence of God. Jesus, we are thankful that you have appeared at the end of ages, of the ages, right now, in where we exist to put away sin, that you have put away sin for all time, for all who will trust and believe in you, for all who are your people, who you call by name, who, who know your voice, who you have made your children. And so, Father, help us to rest in the finished work of Christ where sin has been dealt with in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Father, I plead with you this morning. I need it for my own heart, and I plead for it for my brothers and sisters in Christ that you would create within us a longing, an eagerness, an eager waiting for the return of Christ. And I pray that that eagerness, that that longing would be created because it's what we want because we long to see Jesus, because we love him and know him, and we know that he alone can fill us with ultimate joy and satisfaction into eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So Father, I pray that you would create the longing in our hearts now and so that we would eagerly await for him so that if we are alive when he, dis when he does come, that we would not be those calling for the mountains to bury us, but instead we would be the ones standing confidently with a smile on our face and hearts full of joy when we see him arrive. Father, we could never do such a thing in our own strength, but help us to have such faith and boldness and confidence in the finished work of Christ that that will be our response when we finally see him. Fill us with joy, fill us with gratitude by your grace and for your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.